Welcome to the Viewless Wings Poetry Podcast, where we celebrate the craft of poetry. Each week, we feature interviews with incredible poets, songwriters, and artists, including Olivia Gatwood, Safia El Hilo, Dana Joya, and many more. We also feature periodic submitted poetry episodes. Visit viewlesswings.com to submit your original poetry. I'm your host, James Moorhead, Poet Laureate of Dublin, California, and author of Canvas, Portraits of Red and Gray, and The Plague Doctor. Hit subscribe and follow me on Instagram or threads at Viewless Wings. Tennyson S. Black is the author of Survival Strategies, winner of the National Poetry Series, UGA Press 2023. Their work has appeared or is forthcoming in SWWIM, Hotel America, Booth, Word Gathering, and New Mobility, among others. Black received their MFA at Arizona State University. They are the managing editor at Sundress Publications and Best of the Net, and are the author of the anthology on contemporary disability, A Body You Talk To. Though Sonoran-born, Black resides in Washington State. Tennyson, welcome to the Viewless Wings Poetry Podcast. Thank you so much for having me, James. Excited to have you and to discuss uh, your new book. And it's a tour de force. The characters and Sonoran setting and survival strategies are so clearly and deeply drawn and consistently woven through the poems and prose that the reader is left affected. Details connect the poems and passages. The kestrel cry of killy, 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 repeated in multiple places is just one example. How did you approach crafting this collection to work so well as a unified whole? In the first draft of the book, it was one poem. It was, I had become very enamored of the long poems of Alice Notley and uh, Diane DePrima. And so I thought that I would try my hand at it, at this idea of, you know, an epic poem. Mm -hmm. And so originally it was one poem, I think it was 90 to 97 pages or something like that. Um, but so, so that's why it kind of is unified. But then later I started breaking them out and I found I couldn't, you can't publish in journals if it's all one poem. Yes. And so I started pulling out pieces and then I was like, well, that doesn't make sense without this other thing from, you know, 10 pages previous. And, and so I started kind of putting things together that needed to be together. And then in that process, they started to become individual poems. So it was a process over a very long time, but it, it feels unified, I think, probably because of that. And I'm not sure I could ever recreate that again. I think that that process gave it the arc that it has and gave it that um, sort of through line that you don't see a lot in, in poetry collections, right? Um, and I think it's weird, and I don't think I'll ever be able to recreate it or, or capture that same thing again. Well, I had a similar experience with my second book. I had a, uh, a long poem or series of poems, but really one poem, just like you described, of an 18-day trip I took as a teenager to the Soviet Union. Wow. And it was uh, I wrote this uh, in university. It took like three months to write. And uh, I was, people really liked it, but I was not sure how the heck do I ever do something with this? Because it's, it was 26, 25, 26 poems that were separated by numbers, but really it's just one long 
epic poem. And like, yeah. you, like you described, I can't imagine ever doing that again. This particular experience had so many rich moments that there was no way to capture it in anything but a very long series of poems. So then I ended up putting it out in my second book as, as, as more than two-thirds of the book and then rounded it out with a few other things. But yes, it's tricky. You can't, public, you can't send that to a, to, a, to a journal. It's just not publishable in its, in its true full form. No, and excerpts become mm-hmm. not nonsensical, but they, they don't contain the richness and the information needed to stand entirely on their own. They become almost, you know, uh, almost experimental or just so far out that they're, they're losing um, important information and they're not maintaining the storyline, if you will. Absolutely. When I recite selections from that, I have to give a little bit of context, kind of like an author you know, reading a chapter of a book, you have to do all this overhead to kind of place the the the, the reader. Well, that 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 definitely explains why there's such a unified whole to it. And building on that question, the character representing you has a narrative arc, a journey of understanding about their relationship with the Sonoran Desert. How did you approach crafting that arc while remaining true to the autobiographical elements? I don't think it was always there. I think I had to live it. Um, before I could write it, I had spent so long hating where I was from. I really hated it. I reviled it. I would not even say that I was from there. My social media pages would tell you that I was from Washington because that's where I live now and where I found my home and my people. Um, but I didn't, I didn't say where I was from. And then I, well, I went late to college. You should know that. I was already a parent and and had raised my children because I was a teenage mother. And so I, uh, in that process, decided that I was going to go to grad school and I applied widely and I was lucky enough to get into several schools, but ASU offered me the best package and the best opportunities and also studying with people that I so greatly admired. And uh, I was devastated. I was just beside myself of all of the places on earth. Now I'm going back to Arizona. And um, that's actually where the first poem in the book comes from, is that after I had been uh, accepted into ASU and I took that, uh, I accepted their offer, I, I wrote the first poem in the book and it explores that um, what am I doing? Why am I doing this to myself kind of feeling? But, you know, over the course of that time, I had a, I received a fellowship to go back to Yuma at one point, And I began to revisit these places as an adult where, you know, that feeling, if you, if you were ever, I don't know if you were a um, sensitive child who mm. felt threatened and who had some trauma and had some challenges. And then you become an adult and you try to become the adult that that child needed. And in that process, you also make yourself feel safer. And so I had some of those experiences and I made friends and I found things that I loved about Yuma and about Arizona. And um, now I look forward every time I get to go back, I get excited to see those people, to revisit those places, to go have my favorite foods, you know, um, but I think it was in that process that I lived that arc of, I hate this, I can't do this, to, oh, actually, maybe this is okay now. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't say it's always still okay for those 
sensitive children, but um, I, I lived that arc and I, then I tried to write it, not to redeem myself in any way, but um, maybe to redeem the story, maybe to say that everything wasn't lost, everything isn't terrible. Yeah, I think that your book captures that arc so clearly, and the extra color you just provided is such an interesting backdrop to that. You know, it really, that's why I found the book so compelling, is because you were you were kind of living through this character, uh, kind of like you do with the novel, where you really get invested in the characters of the novel, and when the novel's over, you miss them. Um, right. I don't typically feel that with a, a collection of poetry. I go back and revisit certain poems that I really enjoyed. But the, this book in particular left me with uh, missing the characters that were drawn. So it's really effective. In My Father Warned Me of Havelina, you wrote, He warned me of rattlesnakes and scorpions, taught me that the desert into which I was born was both beautiful and deadly. He taught me respect for nature. Sorry, no, that's not true. He never warned me of anything except boys of a certain shade. But those boys never harmed me once, unlike him. There are many moments like this that caught me as a reader, that made me jolt. How do you approach editing moments like these that are so important for the power of the narrative? I almost cut that poem. Interesting. I did. Um... And I still sometimes look at it a little sideways and wonder if it's too heavy handed. Hmm. Um, I mean, I think, I think all of us do that, right? We, we revisit our work years later and stare at it and think, is that, would I write that today? Is that still, uh, or is that within my best um, capabilities? Um, but I think, I think when I was putting these together, I would look at poem A and poem B and I would realize that the gap between them was too big and therefore this other A and a half needed to be there, which is, I was actually born on the street F and a half because in Yuma, there's a lot of these streets that have letters. Mm -hmm. And um, so on my birth certificate, it says my address is on F and a half. It doesn't exist anymore. It's now got a name, but um, I'm kind of enamored of that idea. Of what what lays what lies between A and B? A and a half. And um, I think that for some of those narrative pieces, that's where those were. I cut a whole lot out of that 97 page poem. Right, mm. a lot of that is not in the book, um, but when I then was rearranging the book and trying to trying to figure out why it wasn't working, right? This doesn't work. That doesn't work. It was those pieces that fit in between mm -hmm. that. And I, I think of that as one of those in between pieces because it bridges what precedes it and what follows it. Yeah. I think it, uh, I mean, I pulled it out because I thought it was so effective. And I think that if the entire book had been in that tone, then maybe you're right, it's too heavy-handed. But because it was surrounded by by so much that wasn't in that tone, that it just, it it stood out in a good way. Like, it, it caught you. So, I, yeah, I found that, I was very moved by that. Uh, so I'm glad you didn't cut it. I thought it was very powerful. Thank you. 
Well, the poems build to a long prose poem. And of course, I I wrote these questions not with the context that this actually was one long uh, poem all to start with. Labeled a fable titled The Mother and the Mountain and anchored on the image of a Thalweg being the alluvial feet of mountains. What was the journey of this portion of the book? Did it start as a prose poem or grow into one? And when constructing the book, how do you approach the forms that different pieces should take? And I'm modifying my question again with the knowledge now that this truly was one contiguous piece to start with. But even within that, you you vary the forms. So talk about how, how form played a role. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, that particular piece, I it, it came in, it went out, it's been in 17, it, you know, it's been broken up into different poems, and then it's been put back together in all these. So it, um, I don't know how you work, but I'm very messy. And I just tear things apart and put it back together and, and mix it up. And I'm always moving them around. And I found so that these were all of the pieces that I had cut from other things. And they were all my mother. They were my mother's story. And mm-hmm. if there's anything that I didn't want was for my mother to end up absent because that was exactly what this period of time had done to her. And that this period of time had erased her magic, her capabilities, everything that she was in the world and it subjugated it. And I hate that. Mm-hmm. I hate that for her. I hate that for every woman that's ever lived. I hate it. And I wanted to push back against that. And I had woven her in much more intricately into each of the poems. But then I found that those pieces were striking notes, those lines rather, were striking notes that um, threatened, they were so heavy that they threatened to derail each individual piece and tip it toward that instead of toward what I was trying to say. And so I slowly was like, no, I can't use this, but I would save it and I would move this and I can, you know. And then I ended up with this whole long thing about just my mother's story. And I thought, okay, that's what I really want is for her story to be weighty, mm-hmm. to have importance, to have value. But in order to really understand all of that, you had to see all of this other stuff first. Yeah, yeah. You had to understand both the location and the people that were involved before you could look at who she had been both previous to it and then through it and after it. And so over time, it um, began to gel into this other form. And I wasn't really sure that anyone was going to let me get away with it for my first book, right? Um, and I was I, I had a lot of concern around it, but also you got to do you and you have to do your art your way and, and hope that it finds a home hope that it finds. No, it was very effective. And having that initial context of making sure her story got the appropriate level of attention and spotlight and is not distracted, is separate. The the form helped do that. Yeah, that's really, and you, you mentioned, uh, you know, how I, messily I work. And I have a couple of examples of where I knew I had a great foundation for a poem. I had one in my uh, second book around a very impactful trip I took to Normandy and to the D-Day beaches and all the experience I had there. And yeah. I knew I had this really cool story to tell. And I first did it in in sort of tight three-line stanzas with a, with a meter and rhyming and a rhyming structure and a fixed meter. And 
I finished the whole thing and I just, this just doesn't work. It's somehow the form is undermining the content. And so I completely scrapped it and redid it as a, as, and I had another poem where I'd written it in the form of a screenplay uh, and um, a screenplay light, if you will. And mm -hmm. my, uh, my youngest said, that's just not working. And so I took that form and apply, uh, they said that, uh, that the, the, the form is cool, but the poem doesn't work. So I took that form and rewrote the Normandy poem as a, as a, a this Normandy in nine scenes, as though it were a screenplay and a prose poem. Wow. And then boom, it worked. So yeah, I think that that's, um, and it took, it was months and months and months in between where I just parked it and this isn't working. So I think that both what you describe and what I've described is to poets who, are confident they have a solid idea, but it's just not working. Like set it aside, work mm -hmm. on other stuff, and you'll be amazed at when you come back to it. You'll see it. You'll see it with fresh eyes, and then and probably just totally rewrite it in a different way. I did, and I think that that piece, unlocking that piece, finally finding that form, um, also allowed me to finally unlock the way that the book was going to lay and move it to the appropriate place and everything at that point fell into place. Amazing, amazing. Well, in I Divorced the Desert, you write, the Roadrunner, the Javelina, the Lizards, all tell tale stories of the ocean that was once theirs, and I want to be a listening person. But I hated this desert, the volley of my life between the ocean and the sage, I began to hate the drifts of sand at the edges of everything, the scrub that scratched and burned tender skin. How did writing these poems that are so personal in places and painful help you understand your history with your parents and the places where you grew up? Um, so my parents divorced when I was young. Up to that point, um, I had had kind of my mother's protection in this place. But my mother took me and ran. Um, when I was two years old and she ran to Southern California. And so that meant though, that then I kind of had to go back to Yuma in the summers and um, the holidays for just in a way that was unprotected. I no longer had her as a buffer. Mm -hmm. And um, that I think was really difficult. And for a long time, I just blamed him because I remember all of the times that I didn't want to go and I would scream and I would grab onto doorknobs and door jams and beg my mother not to make me go. And I remember her crying and saying, you know, I have to send you or I will lose you. I don't have a choice. You have to go. Mm. And I did not want to go. And so I, I blamed him for not being sensitive to that, for not caring about that. And I, maybe I still do, but I think that in thinking it through more, I didn't come to a place of peace about mm -hmm. that, but I found other good things to love about the desert in general um, and to not hate it so much. Yeah, so there was a, I mean, there's definitely for uh, poets writing about things that are painful. I, I wrote a poem about a, a, a mugging in Boston when I was 10 in the subway all by myself and hand over mm -hmm. my mouth. And 
It took me years to figure out how to write that down. Um, it was very uh, helpful to externalize it and to almost get somewhat clinical about, mm -hmm. because then as you're crafting a poem, you, there's an element of you have to be clinical and critical, which is different than it rattling in your head. And so I've, uh, I found that that's, that was very helpful in that traumatic experience that I had growing up. Uh, and being bullied as a middle schooler and having to capture some of that, uh, that it just externalizes it. And I don't know if that's something that you got. Yeah, some I, think, I think that's spot on. When I was writing these um, early on in my grad school um, experience and I was connecting with the desert in this way, oh my God, I was a disaster. I was a complete disaster. I was mm. crying every day because, you know, that process of bringing it up is, is super painful, um, especially if you're kind of an older person and you've kind of buried these for all mm -hmm. of that time. It's almost like they accumulate additional grief over that period of time. And opening those boxes is awful. It's just awful. And I was really struggling. But my mentor and I talked about um, the ways that Bell Hooks pushes things out into the third person um, to gain that distance. And so there was a period of time when the whole thing was in third person for that reason, to push it away from me a little bit and let me look at it a little better. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I think that, you know, your point about externalizing is really valuable. And I, I definitely think that that made a difference for me. And then eventually I could bring it back in when I was a little more healed. Yeah. Well, the unnamed cowboy is a recurring character in multiple poems. In the scrape of the barrel of my father's revolver on my teeth, fantastic title, by the way, I'm going to come back to that titling, includes the line, when the cowboy and the stepmother arrived home to a cruiser in the drive, he hissed, that nosy woman should be drug out behind the barn and shot. And in The Mother in the Mountain, you wrote, the cowboy's charming nature rusted when exposed to the weather of marriage. So how did you approach constructing characters? I've talked about this a little bit before and about the blending of autobiographical and imagined elements and thinking about each character through what I now understand was one long poem, but that makes it even more um, a, a rich question because that's the way novelists have to approach a book is these characters that are fully understood. I remember Margaret Atwood said, you know, in constructing a book, she knows what's in the nightside table drawer, even if she never opens it in, in the telling of the story. So um, maybe to ask the question this way, knowing that you wrote this originally as one piece, did you have a, a strategy structure or approach to almost like the characters that you were going to include and how you were going to represent them? Was that an organic thing or was there some kind of plans probably too strong, but, but, you know, intentional approach to ensuring that consistency? I like to think I'm intentional in those things. Um, but it's probably both. Yeah. Right. If you're being completely honest with yourself, um, my parents were larger than life and I wanted to capture some of that. Um, I don't know that I was always completely effective, um, but I wanted to make sure that I incorporated or at least tried to depict it in a realistic way as I saw it, but that was consistent throughout. I didn't want them changing who they were mm -hmm. right partway through or anything like that because they did not 
as humans, right? They were pretty consistent throughout their lives, but they were also these huge, incredible people who were both great and terrible at the same time. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, I, I thought a lot about symbology. I thought a lot about what are the things, the objects that ties me to these people because I'm an object person. Um, I still am. I keep things that belonged to them just to hold in my hand sometimes and think about that. Um, and I gathered those in my mind and in my notebook. And I thought about not just what those mean to me, but what do those mean in the outside world? You know, what does, what does the cowboy's belt really mean? Yeah. Yeah. Um, what is it about the tooled leather and the, you know, the silver belt buckle and, why why do we associate the belt almost more than the hat and for me it was because it struck me but uh but you know literally and figuratively but it was also that it it was eye level to me and it was um you know something that i had to contend with a lot and wrestle with but the hat uh, which we think about a lot is almost a throwaway it's like it's so on the nose and so almost silly it's almost a caricature the hat but the belt is something else well and also probably the belt is more customizable there's a you know, there's variations in hats but at the same point there's a certain there's a limitation to how custom they can be but the belt buckle is an expression of so many different things um, and it has, can take so many different forms visually. So yeah, I hadn't really thought about that, but yes. Well, I mentioned the, the wonderful titles, well, especially now knowing that the, it wasn't broken up into poems. How did you approach creating these titles that are mini poems, especially given that that wasn't where you started? You had one epic poem and now you got to go and title, you got to figure out how to chop it up. And you got to figure out what to do. Do you just do, like in my rush, the, the Soviet Union poem, I, I just numbered them, one, two, three, four, five. You know, I didn't bother to title them. And I got, people have asked me about that. And I said, oh my goodness, I don't want to come up with 25 titles. Um, was really my, probably my motivation. But the, uh, how did you approach that? Or did you think about, you know what, I will, I, I have to give them titles to get these poems placed. Like walk me through that. Both the, the decision to apply titles and how you came up with these wonderfully rich titles. Oh my God. Titles are ridiculous. They're so hard. They're totally so- hard. Very hard. <laughs> um, I, I was taught by a mentor of mine, Alberto Rios, that the title is the address. It is the, the, mm-hmm what do you call it? The, the geographic, the geographic number, what do you call those? Of a star in the sky, right? And there are trillions of, scar- of stars in the sky, but each one you can locate if you know its address, mm-hmm. right? And um, it's, it's geopositioning, if you will. So I don't know. So I think about that a lot. And how do I locate this particular glom of words amid all of them. How do I locate it? And um, sometimes I'm not so great at it. And other times um, I say, well, this is the thing. This is the one thing that makes this completely unique amid 
not just my poems, but the sea of poems that exist in the world. And um, sometimes it comes really quickly and sometimes it has had 27 different titles over the course of, I actually have a spreadsheet when I was submitting them where I have to list what titles it was in each of these different submissions. Like it's the same poem, <laughs> but then I'm like, I go to submit it over here and I'm like, I hate that title and I'll just redo it. I have the exact same thing. I have a spreadsheet with multiple names for the same poem. Totally. Uh, yeah. And then eventually <laughs> it kind of reaches a place where you stop changing it and then maybe it's settled into that and that really suits it. Um, yeah. Titling is so important. I had a I had a poem called Stage Fright, which is functional and descriptive of what it was, an eighth grade stage fright experience. And a, a poet friend of mine said, um, you got to think of that, like, I love your idea of the poets and address, but the titles and address. I think also the title is like a headline for a newspaper article where they have a separate in a, in a, in a, in a newspaper, they have the reporters and then they have the editors that actually write the title, the headlines. It's a different yeah. skill. And so uh, she really pushed me, said, this poem's so cool, but you got to change the title. The title's so bland. And so I changed Stage Fright into that time I was left for dead downstage. Nice. And, oh, that's great. And it immediately got placed. Now, I, I, it, and I, who knows if the two are connected? I think the title certainly helped, and uh, it really stuck in my mind. So I think of that, if people aren't interested in the title, it's going to be really hard to get them interested in the poem, especially when things are published, published in a journal and people are flipping through the, you know, the table of contents or it's online and they see just the snippet and nothing else. Um, yeah, it's really, really important. I love your idea. I haven't heard it described as an address before. So I thought that was a wonderful description. Well, Tito wrote that, but that's Tito's idea. Okay. So sorry. Changing the title to my book in general, when it was one poem and then for a long time after it was actually titled the lilac seed, um, because I was focused on that concept of my mother mm. and what she gave to me. And um, the lilac was her favorite flower. Um, but when I realized it was not her story, it was also not the cowboy's story. It's my story. And then when I came to that, that's actually when I changed the titles of um, the eponymous poem, the uh, Survival Strategies, within the collection I changed that first it was still the lilac seed and then eventually I was like no actually that's also the name of the collection yeah. because yeah. this is my story this is my struggle or also the struggle of um you know queer and creative and sensitive kids in places where it's very difficult to thrive and that there's ways that the desert survives and there's also ways that creatures within the desert. Survive. Oh, I love that connection of the resiliency of the desert and it's a very harsh environment and yet life survives and there's these wonderful captures of life. I hadn't, that's a really beautiful connection. Well, a few more questions before I hand the mic over to you. You paint powerful, painful, and sometimes beautiful portraits of life in the Sonoran Desert. As we were just talking, you write, Sonoran kids were the kind of dirt that hasn't seen rain or dew since winter last. And the peccary and I breathe together, yogic deep, heavy, dilated breaths. In revising and editing this book, what was your approach to testing and perfecting these images of the desert? It was a lot of memory work. It was a lot of just sort of sitting and being present 
both um, figuratively or, or in my mind, but also um, later within the actual desert itself. It was long walks in the Yuma desert. It was um, writing lists of memories, whole long lists of, of things that struck me both just visually, but mostly emotionally. Like what are the things mm -hmm. that at my age, I still remember whether I struggle with it or whether it, um, I like it. Right. Um, and I think that for me, it was just connecting all of those pieces within myself because I had locked them away for so long mm -hmm. and just, I just shut the door and labeled it. You know, I don't, am I allowed to swear on this podcast? You are. Yes. Okay. All right. I just shut the door and labeled it. Fuck off. And you know, like fuck out of here with that shit. And, um, I moving through that, like opening that door was terrible. And, um, so I think that a lot of that imagery just comes from that. It was like opening the door and then they just start to hit you in the face. And you're just like, wait, 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 let me write it down. And it was, it was that process of pulling it back out of myself. Yeah. And writing this, uh, this long poem of the Soviet Union, I, I, I that was a situation where I couldn't go back uh, practically. Yeah. And also I, I, w I was in the Soviet union pre perestroika. So that does, that whole environment doesn't exist in the same doesn't. way anymore. Right. So it took me months to write, but I was astounded about how much I remembered the more I wrote. And that as I wrote, it just unlocked memories uh, and details that were not, that were all there, but they're, but the process of writing poetry. And I, I encourage anyone who has, whether a powerful experience is positive or a powerful experience was negative, that the process of writing a rich poem will just, it'll, it'll un, unearth memories that maybe you need to remember and deal with, or you want to remember uh, because they were so powerfully positive. Writing poetry is a very effective tool for sucking memories out of your brain. It's just really amazing. Do you think that you're a place-based person? Because I really think that I am. But through this, I've learned that not everybody is. And I guess it's one of those things. Like you have things in yourself that you just kind of think everybody's that way. And then you're kind of surprised to learn that not everybody actually cares about place. And uh, that really surprised me. Yeah, I think that there's certainly, I'm very aware. I've written, po I've, I've gotten a little uh, poetry stuck, uh, writer's block, and I have you know, I change locales to get myself inspired and there may be changing locales. Yeah. I think is definitely works for me. There are other poets where, yeah, maybe that's not the thing that gets them thinking. Um, although I have having raised this a couple of times, I think there is a universality to the process of writing poetry, requiring you to really go deep on what you were feeling and sensing and hearing and every sensorial impact. And that, that just taps into memories. And, uh, I don't, think that's ever been studied but it'd be interesting I think yeah. I'm kind of the other way around I think I live in that world uh -huh. I have a sensory processing disorder and I think that I have sensory overload all the time mm. and I'm fully aware of every sensory detail that's happening around me and my memories contain all of that sort of sensory information as well and that the process of poetry just gives me a place to put it out of my body yeah and to say okay that's there because it's almost like my body has to hold on to it because like, we don't want to forget this. We need this information. Why we need this information. I do not know, <laughs> but my body is like, we have to hold on to this information because we need it. 
like 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 the things you store in your attic that we might need it one day and my body says that and so for me writing poetry lets me say okay it's all right to say that we might need this one day but let's put it over here where it's maybe a little further away from yeah there's some distance and then that brings me peace yeah no it's interesting you as you describe that i'm thinking now of these this small percentage of people that have the ability to remember every detail and recall things from decades before very specific details where as for me the stuff's all there but i actually have to do this unearthing this archaeological project in my mind to dig it out whereas they would have the opposite thing like you described that's really i hadn't thought of it that way that's fascinating yeah well, the writing of queer authors is under attack in many parts of the United States and around the world. One of the ways to combat censors is to promote and put a spotlight on censored authors and help people find their work. What authors do you recommend listeners seek out? Oh, gosh, I don't know that they're really censored, but I um, I think we don't do enough in this country to promote the work of Indigenous writers. Mm-hmm. So I would recommend... Um, I really hate this question because it's one, I'm one of those people that as soon as you ask me, I can name names like all day long, but as soon as you ask me, my brain goes. Well, goes maybe, uh, maybe rather than trying to do a listicle, maybe right. just pull out one of the more recent things that you've read that deserves a spotlight. One of the books that I keep nearby and I go back to again and again and again is Leslie Marmon Silko and the storyteller um, specifically because her work is so vibrant and so important. And um, I just, I can't recommend it enough. Any, any of her work, any of her work, but I keep the storyteller. It's, it's not, it's not, it's right there right now. Um, I keep it close all the time because when I just want to read something that takes me away, she does that. Wonderful. I, I, I ask this question sort of selfishly, too, because I inevitably end up going and seeking out an author or a book that I was not aware of and, uh, and then love exploring a different thread. Well, finally, before I turn the mic over to you, what advice do you have for writers dreaming to be published, both from your own experience getting published and as a managing editor of Sundress Publications? I, there are so many incredible writers who try and try and try and have not been or may not manage to publish their first collection. And I think that's a horrible feeling of the world of creatives and of art. I really think that um, every writer deserves to be published and deserves to be read and, um, so I don't, so my advice has to be persistence, but I, that feels mean because if you need to quit, then, then you need to do what you need to do, protect your creative self. Um, but it would be persistence. And I mean, I submitted survival strategies three times to the National Poetry Series and many other places. It's been rejected many, 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 many times. In fact, after I won the National Poetry Series, after I knew, but I couldn't make the announcement and therefore I couldn't withdraw it from the places where it was uh, pending, I got rejections while knowing that it had already won the National Poetry Series. So 
I'm, it's just it's so subjective in terms of what that press needs in that moment. And so all my best advice is to know that it, it has so little to do with you mm-hmm. and try to um, try to get into that idea and um, protect your heart and to know that it's not um, it's not you and it's not your work. And it's not that you're not good enough. And it's not that your work isn't good enough. It's that um, presses have um, a lot of things that they have to think about that have nothing to do with you. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. You shouldn't read much of anything into a rejection. It's possible that that rejection underneath the hood, there's some valuable feedback, but you're not going to hear it. And most of the time, it really has nothing to do with you. Uh, and another option that uh, that I had to do uh, for my first two books, I wrote poetry for 40 years. I published it to a website. I shared it with friends and family until during the pandemic, a friend said, you should really get serious about your poetry. There's some really good stuff here. Those things had already been effectively published. So I had no choice. I had to self-publish them. Um, but then I learned Margaret Atwood's first book of poetry was self-published. And I started looking into a whole ton of incredible authors um, uh-huh. Lorena McKennett, who's a, who's a, who's a multi-platinum, yeah, who I interviewed, uh, the interviewed very recently for the podcast, uh, amazing person to talk to. She built her own label. She managed her own career. She's totally self-published, uh, her music. Um, so there's nothing wrong with that, but the one piece of advice I'll give if you self-publish that does not absolve you from all the things that a publisher would do. Uh-huh. So you're going to need to hire an editor and a copy editor. You're going to need to hire a designer unless you're very savvy at doing it yourself. If you want to create a quality book, you have to do the things that create quality and find a way to have that editorial oversight. Um, if you want to create a quality book, because it's easy to publish anything now, which is, I think, a wonderful thing. It also means that that there's you have to work really hard to achieve the same quality bar that a publisher would. So that is yeah, always I an think, option. Yeah, that is an always an option, too. If you just waited so long that you just have to get your voice out there. It's it's hard. But yeah. like I am a professional editor. I edit professionally for people. I get paid to do so. I am also managing editor at a press and I oversee other editors. But my work, of course, went to an editor in the press, and sometimes it came back with errors that just made my jaw drop. Like, how did I not see? And yeah, I was like, yeah. I mean, it's proof that even editors need editors, that we need <laughs> people to look at our work and help us make it uh, better in copy not always in content. Absolutely. No, I actually hired a separate copy editor where their goal was letter perfect. Uh, That was what their job was. And they looked at it from that lens. They happened to also specialize, had an MFA in poetry so that they were able to, you know, realize that poetry, unlike prose, doesn't, can be imperfect in intentional ways. But she would ask, did you intentionally intend to do this? Because if you were following the Chicago manual style, you wouldn't do this. But it's poetry. But as long as it's intentional, I go, oh, no, actually, that was not intentional or it wasn't intentional, but it's actually pretty brilliant. So I'm going to keep it that way. Yeah. And sometimes it's embarrassing. There was an I had an it's in there that that had Mm. an apostrophe and shouldn't. And I'm an editor and I would never make that mistake. And I was so embarrassed. I was like, oh, no. (laughs) But I mean, yeah. So editing is important. But I, I think that the biggest thing about being published whether you do it for self or, or otherwise is persist and don't give up and understand that there are no poetry emergencies and there is no, um, poetry is not 
meant to cause you harm. So if the process is causing you harm, mm. step back and look at the ways that you can change the way that you're going about it. Absolutely. Well, now I'm going to turn the mic over to you to read okay. selections from survival strategies. First, I'll read Here I Am. I already mentioned that the first poem I wrote right after I was accepted into grad school, and this was written right after I arrived in Arizona, coming back for grad school and trying to reconcile within myself, finding myself back in the place with which I had struggled my entire life. Here I am in the sage blowing smoke. The creosote's whisper won't ask where I've been, won't have missed me, but I'm older now and don't care. Not because I really don't care, but because care is more than I can do in this body right now. Which place misses a person anyway? We are the sad who go looking for happy instead of growing it. We are the loneliness of air before it is breathed. The want to be absorbed into something to be absolved. Creosote doesn't ask me where I've been, but picks up like I wasn't gone, says, Havlina's been at my roots again. Deserts don't miss people when they leave. And so in that, um, you know, I, um, I have a disability which comes with a lot of chronic pain. And um, my doctors were very happy that I was going back to the desert. They felt like, oh, this is going to really help your pain. But of course, the stress of it all um, actually made my pain worse. And so when I say care is more than I can do in this body right now, it's because I was so overwhelmed mm -hmm. with the whole the whole doing of the whole thing. And um, okay, so uh, we talked about the mother in the mountain. So I wanted to read an excerpt from that. Obviously it's too long for me to read in whole. So I'm just gonna read an excerpt because I like to make sure that my uh, my mom gets some of the credit that she's due in everything that I do. So this is um, talking about my mother and um, when her father was dying and that whole situation. And she always said that um, I reminded her of her father and the things that we have in common, which I think is great because she loved her father. So, and she had struggles with her mother. So this is on page 64 in section four of the mother in the mountain. In her, there was a loving palliative hand for her father. The only true mountain she ever knew when the cancer came. From him, she saved for shithead, that's me, the surefit of wonder he handed down. From him, she saved for her daughter a turquoise ring he'd been given by an indigenous friend. And from him, she passed on the lie that her daughter could be anything. She sat fasting at his side for three weeks, massaged his spotted feet and dignified calves until her hands slept and she followed. She sat humming the hymns she didn't believe in because he believed in them. And there came in the sitting her knowing she was already sliding into the sea. To her young daughter, she held out a pebble from the dregs of his grave and said, here, look at the stone, remember the earth he was, see the tree, see the way the leaves turn and offer you the light. This is how you breathe. Remember his honesty and sense of justice, Swallow this. This is the taste of safety. And into her mouth, she placed a lilac seed. It is smooth and sweet. 
than a pebble, but often hard to get down. Like you, he would walk 10 miles to return a dime that wasn't his. Like you, he loved me and saw worth in me. Like you, I could not save him. Like you, to me, I could not save him. Okay? You can't save me. She had a laugh so loud that it embarrassed her daughter even at this age. And here, she laughed at her own maudlin bathos before sending the child away to play in the grove. There is a woman's paycheck in the creases of her forehead, in the lines of the feet of my mother, feet that began turning west long before she left. So powerful hearing those excerpts in your voice. And uh, you recited one of the lines, desert, don't miss people when they leave, that I just rattled in my brain, makes you pause and chew on the line. Knowing now that this was, again, I keep coming back to this, a, a one long epic poem, how do you approach, how did you approach thinking about the endings of poems, which is, if, if titles are hard, endings are excruciatingly hard. It's a struggle for many poets, especially with amplified by the fact that you had written this as an epic poem. So the beginnings and endings were less concretely drawn as they are with a title and a last line of a poem. So how did you think about that in, in constructing this book? I think one of my great secrets that um, I try not to reveal, so it's maybe a little embarrassing, is that I always write beyond the ending and I very often have to cross out the last three, four lines of a poem um, to sort of unbury because I blow past it. And then later in revision, I look and go, no, that's where that's where this really ended and, and needed to be done. So and I probably do that in everything in my life. Blow right past the ending and hand look back and go, oops, I missed it. I so. think that's such a, a an effective strategy that if you're really struggling with the ending, just chop off the last few lines. You'll be surprised at how much better the poem is so much of the time. it's. I think it's just, you know, endings of poems aren't really endings. They're sort of openings. And mm -hmm. there's just, I think we're wired to sort of tie things off with a bow and you don't want to do that. Yeah. For the most part, you don't want to do that in a poem. Maybe it's intentional sometimes. Well, one more question. What are you working on now? Um, I am I'm working on a few things. I'm one of those people who has so many projects going at any given time that I, I never quite know what to work on at any moment. Um, poetically, I am working on my second collection. It's almost finished. Um, and I'm also working on a collection of essays. And I am working on a novel. Uh, all kind of at the same time. And we'll see, I guess we'll see what I finish and uh, <laughs> what falls away. Exciting. Well, I can't wait to see what you come up with next. I so thoroughly enjoyed uh, survival strategies. Well, Tennyson, thank you for sharing your poetry and your voice on the Viewless Wings Poetry Podcast today. Thanks so much for having me, James. The Viewless Wings Poetry Podcast is written and produced by James Moorhead. You can follow me on Instagram, Threads, and YouTube at Viewless Wings. Hit subscribe to be notified of every episode of the Viewless Wings Poetry Podcast and spread the word with your poetry community.